Good morning, church. Our scripture today is again from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, and you can find it on page 6 of your bulletin. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt, there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private eat. For when you are eating, sorry, private suppers, as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. Nevertheless, when we are judged in this way by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be finally condemned with the world. So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Anyone who is hungry should eat something at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give further directions. Good morning again. Let's pray together before we take a look at this passage. Jesus, we look to you and we want to see you. Uh, there's a lot to see in this passage, but we know that what you most want to show us is, is not just more teaching in and of itself. It, it, it's not just uh, understanding these words, though that's helpful and needed. But most of all, we need to see you. We need a fresh encounter with the living Christ. And so we pray that you would do that now and that you would bless this time, that you would remove any barriers in our hearts, any resistances. Uh, Jesus, please apply this, each of us, to each of us in whatever way we most need you. So please come, Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but... I'm not really into horse racing, but, you know, it's perfect that Ben Beaton, of all people, uh, did the scripture reading here as I begin today, uh, who's from Kentucky, 
speaking, begin today speaking to you about the Kentucky Derby. I don't normally watch horse racing, but when the Kentucky Derby is on TV, like it was yesterday, it's really hard not to watch. And so I invited my kids around the TV as I noticed it was ready to turn on, and I asked if they would like to pick a horse to root for. And so I sort of read off some of the names of the horses, and I'm, I'm pretty sure they picked the, just about the only one whose name they could actually pronounce, uh, but be that as it may, finally, finally, they made their choice. So what horse would you like to cheer for, I called out. Justify, they shouted together. As you may know, it was a good choice. As the race began, you know, at first the kids, they watched in a little bit of suspense, right? They didn't really know what to expect out of a horse race. I'm pretty sure it was the first one that they had ever, ever really seen. Uh, but then finally, when they uh, identified that number seven on the side of the horse and the crowd of galloping horses, they started to call out, justify, come on, justify. And the little cheers grew louder and louder as our horse, and yes, by now, justify was our horse, <laughs> grew louder and louder as our horse pulled ahead of the pack. And then that big moment, justify, one, crossed the finish line first. And by this point, Jeremiah was jumping up and down on the couch, and Elena was screaming, and I mean, I was just kind of bemused. I was sort of saying to myself, I, I just can't believe the horse my kid picked actually won. <laughs> I mean, when does that actually happen, right? And then I just watched them as they began, as kids would in such a situation, as they began to gallop around the room like little horses themselves. A new calling on their lives, apparently. Right? Still calling the horse's name, still shouting, we won, we won, justify. And I was so happy for my kids in that moment. It was a little thing, of course. I was just happy for them, especially knowing how unlikely that moment really was. As a dad, I, I sat there just enjoying their joy. And was even, even, I admit, moved deeply, almost to tears, uh, just finding pleasure in my kids, in their surprise and in their sheer delight. And even though I personally had nothing to do with the outcome of the race, just by having gathered them there and sharing that moment with them, it almost felt like somehow, by inviting them into this moment, that I'd given them a gift. Which reminded me, and it really did in that moment, it reminded me of Jesus' words. If you, though you're sinful, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Do you know God is that gift-giving Father, that Father who delights in his children, who delights in giving gifts you. Do you know that God? And do you know that one of the greatest gifts that our Heavenly Father gives to us, his children, is what we call the Lord's Supper. 
which is the topic of today's passage. You see the phrase there in verse 20, the Lord's Supper. It's also known as the Eucharist in some traditions. That is just taken from the old Greek and Latin word for giving thanks, a phrase we also find here in this passage. It's also known as communion, which is a phrase we find in the previous chapter, in chapter 10, all sorts of names. Here it's called the Lord's Supper, and that's a reference, of course, to the bread and to the wine or juice. You have it here in front of us. We'll take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. That Christians eat and drink together as part of their worship, as part of their remembrance of the sacrifice of Jesus. We here in our church, we take the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and so it's good for us to even understand what it is that we're doing. So in our time together, I just want to ask two simple questions. What is the Lord's Supper? Maybe a question that's come to your mind. What is the Lord's Supper, and how do we do it? What is it? Well, according to our passage, what is the Lord's Supper? It's the presence of Jesus. It's a promise from Jesus. It's a proclamation about Jesus. And it's the people in Jesus. Look, look at each of those four in turn. What's the Lord's Supper? Number one, it's the presence of Jesus. You kind of can see from the context here that in the way the Lord's Supper was practiced in the Corinthian church, as well as in the early seasons of the church, the community of Christ would get together frequently for meals. You would eat together a lot. That's something that we do amongst people that we love. Are you eating with other people in the church? It's a spiritual practice. It makes sense that God would attach this special ceremony to this broader activity of eating and breaking bread together. But apparently at the end of these regular meals that were shared in the church, at the end there would be a special ceremony, a special time, a special ordinance, sacrament that would be shared called the Lord's Supper. It's a supper. It's a meal. And guess who's sitting at the table with you? You know, when you think about what's special about meals, oftentimes it's the food. Certainly it's the food. It's also the company that you share. Uh, the person that maybe surprised you by inviting you to sit and dine with them. Or maybe it's the person that you've always wished would invite you to that dinner. Maybe a romantic interest, maybe a colleague, maybe someone that you're a fan of, maybe a friend that you've just been dying to spend some time with. This table gives us a little bit of a picture of a God who wants to sit with you. A God who actually wants to share a meal with you. And not just despite your brokenness, and not just looking past your sin, but in fact because of it. Because he wants to heal you, and make you whole, and forgive you, and change you. In fact, when you come to this table, the picture that we're given is that Jesus himself is sitting across from you, sitting with you. He is present. You have before you the presence of Jesus. 
in the second paragraph of our passage here in verses 23 to 26, what we have is this recollection of Jesus' words and actions, what he said that last night before he was crucified when he shared what's often called the Last Supper with his disciples. In verse 23, we're told, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And of course, if you've worshipped with us and participated in the Lord's Supper week after week with us, or maybe in some other church setting, those very verses are familiar to you. Pastor Yancey and myself or some other minister repeat some version of that as we administer and introduce the Lord's Supper to you. But one thing that you'll notice in there that's very curious and worth paying attention to is the way that Jesus takes these elements, the bread and the wine or the juice, and he says, this is me. This is my body. This bread is my body. This wine is my blood. And of course, throughout church history, there's been debates amongst theologians and readers of Scripture trying to understand what is, is. What did Jesus mean when he said, this is my body? Did he mean it in the most literal sense as though to say that this bread and wine is my physical flesh and my physical blood? That, in fact, is the view of the Roman Catholic Church. It's this position, this understanding that what Jesus meant to say is that when we take the Lord's Supper, that there's a miracle that happens, a miracle that is real but which you cannot see, that that bread actually is the flesh of Jesus and that wine actually is and turns into the blood of Jesus. This is what's often called transubstantiation. On the other end of the spectrum is the view that's often held by Baptist traditions and most Protestants in America. And that's what's often called the memorial view, which is to say what Jesus, by saying is, just simply meant is in the same way that he said, I am a shepherd or I am a rock. He meant it as a metaphor, just a metaphor. Not that he actually in any way becomes the bread, the bread actually becomes his flesh or the wine becomes his blood. In fact, we know that physically Jesus is present in heaven. Jesus spiritually can be everywhere, is everywhere all at the same time, but physically cannot be at more than one place at the same time. That's just the nature of physical things in the way that God has made them. So instead, he simply means to jog our memory. He's saying, this is me, so just think about me. Remember what I have done for you in my death and in my resurrection. Remember that I have died for your sins. But it seems that Jesus is saying a little bit more than just remember me. It seems that Jesus does mean that he, there is something physical, uh, spiritual about his presence here at this table. In fact, in the previous chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16, 
Paul says this about the Lord's Supper. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? In fact, in that same place, the apostle refers to the Lord's Supper as spiritual food and spiritual drink. There's something more going on than just visible bread and wine and juice. In fact, when Jesus said, this is my body, this is my blood, what he meant to say is, I really am here spiritually, not physically, but spiritually and specially, more here in this moment than anywhere else. Jesus is present in the table. Do you come forward if and when you come to communion with that level of expectation? I am about to encounter, spend time with, commune with Jesus who really is here. It's a table of fellowship, a table of relationship, a table of intimacy. Don't forget the idea. God wants to take you out to lunch. Jesus really wants to be with you. And of course, as we consider this idea that the supper represents the presence of Jesus, it's worth considering, do you know a God who wants to be present with you? Because you know, the God of the Lord's Supper is a God who knows you're hungry spiritually. He knows you have needs. He loves to feed spiritually hungry people. He doesn't mock your neediness. He's not blind to your pain. The God of the Lord's Supper is a God who draws near to the unworthy. He sits down with former enemies. He makes covenant with people who are running the other way. Do you know a God who wants to be present? Not in general. Friends, think about it. A God who wants to sit with you. The Lord's Supper is the presence of Jesus. Secondly, it's a promise from Jesus. The bread of the table signifies to us, points us to the body of Christ. Jesus says in this verse here, in verse 24, my body broken for you as this bread is broken before you. And the blood also shed for you as signified by the wine and the juice that you drink. Theologians therefore say that the bread and the wine are signs of the death of Jesus. They put before us a real picture, a, a, a gospel picture of what Christ has done. But it's not only a sign, it's also a seal. And by that language, what we mean is something like an old ancient king's wax seal, a stamp that they would put on a document or on a scroll. In other words, the equivalent of what we would do when we sign papers to authenticate them, to guarantee contractual obligations. Yesterday, I had the privilege of officiating a wedding of two members of our community, Joe and Linda, 
And it was a joy, as it always is, to lead them through their vows and to celebrate the new union that they are sharing in marriage. And then the stressful part, when I get that marriage certificate in my hand. And it's now like their entire marital future is on this piece of paper that I need to sign and submit to the city of the District of Columbia. And of course, it's not that big of a deal. You just need to sign it and put it in the mail. But you feel that sense of responsibility there. If, if I happen to lose the certificate, I passed it on to Paula and she acted like it was radioactive. She said, I don't want to hold this. Uh, you know, you, you, you know don't, don't put that on me. You, you, you take it. And what's the big deal of that certificate? Of course, I, as the officiant, I sign it, I write my name on it, which guarantees that this wedding actually took place. It's a guarantee. The Lord's Supper is Jesus' guarantee. It's his signature unto our hearts. It's a way in which we're to take that bread and take that wine and to be reassured of the promise of the gospel in our hearts. Where we're told again and again, every time you eat and every time you drink, it's true. Jesus died for you. It's true. He shed his blood for you. It's true. Your sins are forgiven. It's true. You are united to Christ. It's true. Your God wants to sit with you. It's true. You're beloved of God. Do you believe these things are true? And maybe not. Maybe not as much as you want to, or maybe as not as much as you know you ought to. Which is why this table is such a gift. God wants to reassure you that these things are true, that his promise is real. And he wants to reassure you again and again and again. That Christ died for you. That he took his sins upon you. And now he will feed your soul. He will feed your faith. As I said in the last chapter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the apostle uses the language of spiritual food and spiritual drink to describe what goes on here in this Lord's Supper. Do you know that Jesus is not only present here, he's also feeding you, feeding your faith. He's scooping up loads of grace and pouring it into the mouth of your soul that you might be stronger, that you might grow. This is how you grow, deepening your understanding of the grace of the gospel for you. The Lord's Supper is a promise from Jesus, a promise that he wants to reassure you of again and again and again. And don't miss this. Just the relentless love of God. That he's not a God that says, hey, well, Jesus died for you. Have you gotten that already? He's not a God that says, don't you believe this already? He doesn't say, have you forgotten already? No, this is a God of grace. A God who says, I know you're going to forget. I know, I, I know it's, your, your, your heart will drift. I, I, know, I know. I know who you are. I knew who you were and who you are even before I set my love upon you. You know, this isn't a mistake. And in fact, so relentless is my love, I'm going to chase after your wanderings. I'm going to try to reassure you again and again and again. And so I'm going to keep on saying, come to the table, come to the table, come to the table. 
Get your promise renewed. Have a deeper guarantee resounding in your ears that it is true. Christ died for me. It is true. It is true. And let Christ write his signature on your heart that your sins are forgiven. Do you know a God that's this relentless, that doesn't leave you on your own, that gives you gift after gift and promise after promise because the Lord's Supper is a promise from Jesus. Thirdly, the Lord's Supper is not only the presence of Jesus and a promise from Jesus. Thirdly, it's a proclamation about Jesus. Look at verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. To which someone says, well, I've taken communion many times, but I'm pretty sure I was silent. I'm pretty sure I didn't say anything, at least not verbally, and that's the point. That every time you take communion, every time you eat of the Lord's Supper and drink of the Lord's Supper, you are proclaiming something to yourself, to others, and to God. And what is that? It's this. Just like bread and wine and food and drink, It's something that I need for life physically. I need Jesus for life spiritually. Just as my physical body would die without eating and drinking food and drink, I would die spiritually without the grace of Jesus. You're proclaiming your need for the death of Christ. You're proclaiming your need for the grace of Christ to wash over you, not just at one point in time in the past, but again and again and again. You're saying this out loud, but with your actions, with the action of taking in more of Jesus, of coming to the table humbly and saying, this is what I most need. Of all the troubles in life, this here is what I most need, this one Jesus, my Savior, is the one that I most need. And it's almost like taking a public oath, declaring the truth of what this promise represents in your need of Christ. As commentator and theologian Anthony Thistleton put it, to take and to eat and to drink proclaims Christ died for me, I am his, and he is mine. Every time you come to the table, this is what you proclaim. Which is why every week we try to be careful to instruct you that if you're someone who has not embraced Jesus, that we advise you not to take that table because we don't want you to contradict your own conscience. We don't want you to take your beliefs, which may not have been formed around the person and the death of Christ, and yet now you're taking this table which is proclaiming, I'll die without Christ and I need his death for life. And if that's not where you're at, we don't want to put you in a position of committing what essentially this passage is teaching us is an act of spiritual perjury. We want to care for you and love you and to actually honor your journey every step of the way so that you're not getting ahead of yourself and you're being true to where you really are in relation to God. 
and we're a church that's committed to walking with you day by day and week by week and year by year, however long it takes. And if, even if it takes you nowhere in any direction but to keep on walking together because we love you, because you're a friend, because you're a neighbor. And we long for you to know Christ, of course, and we pray that every day, every week might be the day that you finally do know him. But as far as taking the table, we do want to walk with you and not seeing you take it prematurely. But it's also true for professing Christians. Even if you are one that's united to Jesus, do you uh, come to the table with consistent convictions? If by taking the table you are proclaiming, I would die without Christ and I need him for life, his death alone brings me to God, Is there any part of your life where you're resisting that proclamation? Is there any part of your life where you're saying, well, generally I need Jesus, but over here, I don't need him there. I've got this covered. Or this area of my life, uh, broken and maybe sinful, but I don't really think it's sinful. And so, nah. Do you know that you might be committing spiritual perjury before the Lord? Denying what you are proclaiming in your actions by what you are stating by your lives. Verse 30 gives us this warning, that is why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we were more discerning with regard to ourselves, we would not come under such judgment. It's a sobering word. But if you think about it, if Christ really is present here, And if we're lying about who he is and what he's done for us, uh, would we be surprised that there might be some impact, some consequences upon our lives? In fact, Paul tells us that that's not just judgment that's meant to destroy you. It's actually meant to be a wake-up call, uh, to turn you back to Christ, to notice that you actually do need to humble yourself and repent and be restored unto fresh communion with Jesus. Because this table, this Lord's Supper, is a proclamation about who he is and what he's done. Fourthly, the Lord's Supper is all about a people in Jesus. A people in Jesus. And actually, this is the main point of this entire passage. This was the main thing that the Corinthian church was forgetting and that the Apostle Paul was correcting. Look at verse 18. In the first place, I hear when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. And then skipping to verse 20. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. And as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. And here's what he's referring to by those verses. Historians have come to understand that there were certain customs for sharing meals in Roman culture and that were the normal dining customs in the city of Corinth. A host would invite guests over to their house and they would treat them in a main room. It was called the triclinium, sort of the main dining room, the main living room in the home. And that's where the host would eat together with the special guests, sort of the VIPs among the guest list, uh, usually the elite in society. 
and they would actually eat and recline on couches. Couches which would sort of fill up the space a little bit, so you would only have room for about nine or ten special guests in this main room. And oh, by the way, this is also where they would serve the best of dishes, the best food, uh, the top shelf items, as it were. That was the main room, and then there was a second room. This one was called the atrium, and it was sort of a courtyard or even a hallway, a little bit smaller than that first room that I just described. That's where, well, less important guests would be ushered. Uh, whether if you didn't have the same social power or status, maybe you were materially poorer, maybe you had no standing in that community, that's where you would be expected to sit and eat. This was sort of the overflow room in Corinthian homes. There were no couches there. So you either had to stand and eat or maybe sit on the ground, but that also allowed you to pack in a lot more people, and so oftentimes you'd find up to 30 guests uh, you know, it's kind of like uh, flying economy versus uh, noticing the few people that get to spread out a little bit in first class. Here you are among servants, uh, among uh, people in the lower classes of Corinthian society, as well as younger relatives of guests that were in the nicer room. You see, you were seated at the kiddie table. And what kind of food was served there? Not the best dishes, uh, not the specials. Uh, but one ancient Greek historian said, uh, there we were served the cheap scraps. Guess what? This is how the Corinthian Christians were also conducting the Lord's Supper. They had brought these Social practices, just the way that people did eating and socializing in their city, and brought them into the church. They were serving the Lord's Supper according to the social customs of upper-class Roman society, which is why in verse 22 the apostle says, don't you have homes to eat and drink in? I mean, can't you just do this, what you're doing in your own homes? You know, not in worship, as if it's the same thing. Or the rest of that verse, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? Paul tells them that it's a complete violation of the meaning of the Lord's Supper. You see, because the Lord's Supper is all about the death of Jesus and about people proclaiming that they need of the death of Jesus. Uh, people that know that they can't wash themselves or forgive themselves people that know that they would die without the life-giving grace of Jesus, people that are starving for him, people that are looking to him for salvation. But no, here are a bunch of Christians that are pretty sure about themselves, are happy to prop themselves up with superiority over others in the community. And Paul says, don't you know this Lord's Supper, it brings you down to level ground. It brings you all, whatever you are and whoever you are outside of these walls, you stand in here on common ground because you stand before the cross of Jesus. Even the level ground of acknowledging that you need food, if we could just even look at that story, 
right, this common confession that we would all starve, every one of us would not survive without food and drink. And in the same way, we stand on level ground acknowledging before the death of Christ that we're all sinners, that we all deserve the condemnation of God because of the selfishness of our sin. There's no one person that can dare say they could have made it on their own before God. We all stand on the level ground of the grace of God. Not a single one of us can claim to have a higher status before God or in the family of God. In fact, the Lord's Supper is one of the grandest symbols of unity that we have in the entirety of the Christian church. It's why in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 17, we're told this, because there is one loaf, we've got a loaf down here, you'll see it in a second, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. You see, the Corinthians were conducting their community life and worship life with all these social divisions. And Paul says, don't you know you're one? And in fact, don't you know that's precisely what this table of communion is all about? Common sinners needing the grace of God commonly, standing on level ground together before the foot of the cross. And so, of course, the question comes before us, We need to ask it, are we making anyone feel in our church like they're in the proverbial overflow room? Because of how much money they have or don't have, or because of their educational background, or maybe how they talk or how they dress? What might need to change in order for us to be a community that appropriately reflects more of the economic diversity of our local neighborhoods, where people of all backgrounds feel like they can participate and be a part of the one loaf of Christ, standing on the level ground of the grace of Christ? Are there subtle ways that we might be making brothers and sisters in Christ feel second class? Maybe not intentionally, but maybe we're not applying enough intentionality. In fact, in verse 33, towards the end of this passage, we're told, so then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. And that language there, eat together, can also be rendered wait for one another. Right, because the Corinthians were just taking their special guests and going into that main wonderful room and eating that wonderful food and leaving everyone else behind, wait for one another. Eat together, wait for one another. Friends, to be one, it takes slowing down. It, it, it takes evaluating, what, how am I communicating? Am I bringing people in? Am I making people feel second class? Am I making people feel like they live, even as a brother and sister in Christ, in the overflow room of the church? To live as the people of one loaf and of the one Christ, it takes a little bit of waiting for one another, slowing down maybe your pace even literally, to pay attention to those around you, to listen to a story, to bring them in, to come in as peers and to know each other as brothers and sisters 
in Christ. Because the Lord's Supper makes us a, a people in Jesus. Well, how then do we do the Lord's Supper? And let me close with this very briefly, very quickly. How do we do the Lord's Supper as we're about to do in just a second? Well, it's simple and yet it's deep. Number one, examine yourself. Number two, examine Christ. And number three, examine one another. Number one, examine yourself, verse 28. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. And as Paul says in verse 27, he explains what we are to examine. He says, so then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. And by this he means examine your life and notice your need for spiritual food. Uh, consider your deep hunger for Christ. Uh, examine yourself as to the ways in which you are a sinner, you are selfish. Uh, see the ways in which you are starving for healing. Uh, notice those things about you in a way that makes you hunger for the table of Christ. Because, friends, isn't it true of our physical bodies that you don't eat unless you have an appetite? That you won't eat food unless you know you need to eat food for life? It's no different in the spiritual realm and in this table. Will you consider all the ways in which you are in need of Christ? And let me be clear that as Paul warns us against coming to the table in an unworthy manner without examining ourselves, please understand that unworthy doesn't mean sinner, because that is what you are. Paul is not telling us that we should come and clean ourselves up before we come to the table. That cleansing work is Jesus' business. He's the only one that can do that. Come as a sinner but as a repentant sinner, as a sober sinner, as a humbled sinner. Uh, an unworthy manner is not being a sinner, it's being a smug sinner. It's being a self-sufficient sinner. It's being a self-saving sinner. Humble yourself and come to Christ. As Thomas Watson, the old Puritan, said a long time ago, our sins should humble us but they must not discourage us from coming to Christ. A weak faith can lay hold on a strong Christ. Number one, examine yourself. And then number two, examine Christ. In verse 29, we're told, For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment upon themselves. We're called to discern the body of Christ, to see the body of Christ. As you remember, the Corinthians, their problem was they were just acting like this was another meal. They missed its spiritual significance. They didn't see Jesus and his death in the meal that they were eating. In other words, Paul is saying, examine Christ. In other words, see him in the bread and in the wine. See with spiritual eyes the broken body of Jesus through the broken bread. See with spiritual eyes the poured out blood, the life of Jesus through the wine and juice. And this is what we're to do as we come to the table. Examine Christ and see him again and again and again. The Heidelberg Catechism, which is an old 
question and answer format explanation of Christian doctrine, so helpful in so many ways, actually tells us how we're to talk to ourselves while we're taking the Lord's Supper. How we're to examine Christ and to make use of the bread and the wine helpfully so that it might be that signature upon our hearts. What did it say? Listen to this. You tell yourself this. His body was offered and broken on the cross for me. Tell yourself that. And his blood was shed for me. You're talking to yourself, right? As certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me, and further that with his crucified body and shed blood, he himself feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life, as certainly as I receive from the hand of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, which are given me as certain tokens of the body and the blood of Christ. So what does that mean? This is what you're supposed to do. Take that bread. Smell it. Is it real? It's real. How real? Very, very real. I can smell it. I can taste it. And then you tell yourself, just as real as this little nugget of bread, and if you need a real convincing piece of bread, then take four pieces if you need it. And you tell yourself, just as real as this bread is, is in my hand. So real, even more real, is the promise of Jesus' forgiveness to me. And then you smell it, and you smell the sweetness. Sometimes we got pumpernickel, so it gets a little funky, but you smell it. And you smell the sweetness of the bread, and you tell yourself, or you smell the sweetness of the juice, and you're interacting with the physicality of these things, and you tell yourself, just as sweet as this juice is on my lips, so is the grace of Christ sweet to my weary soul. And you, and, you, and you drink it and you feel it going down your throat and into your stomach and you eat it and you chew it and you are preaching the gospel to yourself using these elements, savoring the food as you savor the spiritual food of Christ given to you. And in that way you examine Christ even as you have examined yourself and seen your sin for what it is, here's the main point. See Jesus. Don't see yourself. This is a table of joy in the gospel, of relief from guilt, of comfort for wounded people. I used to, when I was younger, think that communion was a time to be miserable. I don't know where I picked up that message, but it's sort of this time where you sit in a solemn way and you remind yourself of all the ways you stink, and all the ways you've screwed up, and then you sort of throw back a little drop of juice, and then you stand up and you're like, well, wasn't that terrible? You're supposed to get up from this table, and you say, I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm washed clean. Jesus is for me, not against me. Jesus is making me whole. He's changing me. He's making our relationships new. All the ways that you feel like, I, I, I can't believe that. I, I don't think it's true. You bring your doubts. You bring your uncertainties. You bring all those things where it seems like there's more evidence in the world for hopelessness. I'm never going to change. He's never going to change. This world is never going to change. 
and you take this bread and you say, this is really real, but even more real is Jesus. And you take these things and you let it minister to your heart and you rise up with new freedom and new joy and new comfort because you're focusing on the death of Christ even more than you focus on yourself. As the old Scottish minister Murray Machane once said, for every one look at, no, for every one look at your own sin, take ten looks at the cross of Jesus. And the table of Jesus is precisely the place where we're supposed to do that. For every one moment of examining your own need for Christ, take ten looks at Christ himself and let him write the signature of his love upon your hearts, giving you the assurance that you never knew that you could have. Thirdly, examine yourself, examine Christ, examine others. Because the other way in which, the main way in which the Corinthians were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, you know, was because they were eating with divisions. They were eating with a sense of superiority rather than being humbled by grace. They were eating as though they were their own life givers instead of knowing that it's the death of Jesus that gives them life. It's why they were excluding people. It's why they were putting themselves over and above people. It's why they had some brothers and sisters in the overflow room. So see with spiritual eyes the broken body of Jesus through the broken bread, but will you also see with spiritual eyes the people around you. This time of communion is meant to be not only communion with God and Christ, but also communion with one another. There's no better time for you to notice the needs of those around you. It's why it's a perfect time for you to receive prayer from our prayer team. They always sit there in that back row because sometimes what we need is not just help from God, but you need a real flesh and blood person to say, I care about you, let's sit together, let's pray. Or to stand in line and to not pretend like there's not another human being. Sometimes we do that, we pretend we're in these little portals all by ourselves and you almost think there's an unspoken rule that you can't talk to any, you, you can talk to people on the way to communion, why? Because you're one, one loaf, one people, one body, and this table of communion is meant to bond us one to another because we are, as it were, reaching for the same cup together at the same time. We're reaching for the same loaf of bread and taking from the same Jesus as the same kinds of sinners together. There's nothing that distinguishes us one from another before Christ, and we should take communion in that sort of way. Uh, does our time together around the Lord's Supper make us love each other more? It ought to. And maybe that simply means you need to pick your eyes up. Maybe you need to look for somebody that needs a hug. Maybe you need to give an encouraging word. Maybe someone you just know looks downcast, and you need to tell them, you better believe Jesus loves you today. Tell somebody that today as we take the Lord's Supper. Don't you know your sins are forgiven and so are mine. Minister to one another. Encourage one another. Demand of each other with joy that we believe the good news of the gospel as it's given to us in the bread and in the wine. This is the Lord's Supper, the great gift that God has given to us in Christ. 
You may have heard the story of an old Scottish preacher who, during communion, noticed a young woman who broke down in tears. She trusted in Christ, but that particular day, she was just so overwhelmed by her sin, so ashamed by what she had done and by what she had become, and she was pretty sure that she had disqualified herself from taking the bread and the wine. When this preacher saw her hesitate, he knew what needed to be said, and he drew near to her, and he said to her, speaking into her hesitation, take it, take it, lassie, take it. It's meant for sinners. It's meant for sinners. You might feel unworthy, you are, and that's why we need grace. You might feel defeated, thanks be to God for the victory that we have in Christ. You might feel guilty, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You might feel naked and ashamed, Praise Christ for the clothing that he covers us with in his love. You might think you can't come to him because of your sin. Don't you know? Your sin is your ticket in. Into the arms of the one who loves you so, who wants to give grace even to the chief of all sinners. Take it today, dear friends. Take Christ. He's meant for sinners. Let's pray. We ask that you would make this a reality to us even in the next few minutes as we take communion. We pray that you would bless the way in which we feast upon you from today on forward. We pray that you would renew us and comfort us and give us strength because of the good news of Christ's death for us. We rejoice in him, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.